Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So I just want to give you a quick summary, a uh, quick summary of what last week was about. And I, I found a, a, um, a, sa- like a, a statement from a scholar that perfectly wraps up what we talked about last week. And it's the first line of your notes. And so this will be the only kind of shout out we have the last week and then we'll move forward. <clears throat> there is 1,000 times, first line of your notes, there's 1,000 times more evidence available for the New Testament than any other ancient author, dating 1,000 years earlier than any other ancient author. Both of those lines are 1,000. And here's what I mean. When we're talking about the Bible, everybody in the room, if I asked the Christians what the Bible is, they would say the Word of God. And that would be correct. We're going to drill a little bit deeper and look at some very specific aspects of the Bible, how it was constructed. We'll do that in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. But um, how do we know that the Bible that we have in our hand is legit? It's the real deal. And so um, there is a thousand times more evidence than any other writing by any other author on average in that time period. And there's a th- dating a thousand years earlier, meaning that the, the writings of Jesus and what happened in his life um, happened very quickly, very quickly after his death um, for the people to be able to spread the message of, gospel, of the gospel. So we're going through a couple of questions here about the Bible, and we'll, uh, last week we did as well. We're going to continue on this week. And number one in your notes is how do we know the Bible hasn't been tampered with? How do we know that the Bible hasn't been tampered with. Now, for a very long time, um, most there, there was a, um, a lot of talk and a lot of teaching uh, for, for decades, actually, that the Bible, that the Old Testament parts where Jesus fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, was actually written after he died. It was, um, you know, these guys are, are saying that they looked at the life of Jesus they wrote down what he did and said, oh, this actually was written beforehand. And so, ta-da, we have invented a Messiah out of nothing. And so that was kind of the, the idea for a long time. Like the, you know, the Bible was written after Jesus or the authors and made up all the prophecies that point to him. And so um, there's a lot of evidence that we could go through, but I want to go through one in particular that I find very compelling and very interesting, and that is the book of Isaiah. And we're going to go, um, we're going to read one chapter in particular, Isaiah 53, and the reason is, is because there are a lot of prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus, that are written in this passage. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along in your hearing, but I want you to kind of just notice these prophecies that Jesus fulfills what it says about the coming Messiah, and what happened to Jesus, okay? Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, meaning the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, 
he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of many people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering, and through the Lord makes his own life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Now, I don't know if you, how well you know the story about Jesus, but everything that we just read is something that Jesus fulfilled with his life. He, he kind of came out of, like he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Like, where did that come from? We hear people in the gospel say, can anything good come from Nazareth when they recognize that Jesus was from that area? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He wasn't head and shoulders above everybody else. You know, he didn't have that gold hair flowing in the wind. He didn't look like, you know, Fabio. If you know who Fabio is, then you're over 40, I'm sure. Um, if you don't, just like some Captain America guy without his shirt on, only with the longer hair, forget it. Um, so he didn't look like he was some specimen that people should be like, that's the guy we should follow. There was nothing that made him stand out in a crowd visually. He was crushed for us. He was beaten for us. He was bruised for us. He was whipped for us. And all of this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus ever was born. Next on your notes, the prophet Isaiah lived around 700 B.C. So you're talking about 700 years B.C., or for those of you guys who have been in school over the last decade, it's now B.C.E., right? It used to be before Christ, and now it's before Common Era. But before Jesus lived, 700 years, those words were written and prophesied about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Now, you could look at that and say, well, how could people start to say, if this was written so far beforehand, how could people say that it was all made up? Well, that's because 
next line in your notes, the earliest copy of the book of Isaiah in our possession was dated 950 AD or 950 CE, after the life of Jesus. So when people were looking for evidence to say, oh, is this real or not? Oh, the oldest copy of this story that we have was written 950 years after Jesus was born. They made this whole thing up. And for decades, this idea was presented and distributed throughout all of the education institutions in our country. They use this as a, as a point to say, oh, this is all made up. Stop following that Jesus thing. Don't do the Bible thing. And people who didn't want the scripture to be right, didn't want it to be real, latched on to this evidence. This is actually a, a picture. I'll have Jules show the, the first picture. This is actually a picture of the, the, the manuscript from 950 A.D., it's called the Aleppo Codex, and it was, it's, a, it's a complete Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, but it was written completely in Hebrew. And that's what it looks like right there. Very old, very astonishing that's been preserved. But we all know that the New Testament was written in Greek. This is all in Hebrew. So, again, another piece of evidence for people to say, oh, the Bible's not real. It was all made up after the fact. Detractors pointed to the date after Jesus lived as an accusation that the prophecies were made up and fabricated to make it appear that Jesus fulfilled them and was the Messiah, but in fact, he really wasn't. Until 1947. No, I was not alive then. All you young people who have looked at me and told me I was a cousin to Moses, you know, right? I was not alive then. Um, but a young man, next time you know, it's 1947, a young man discovered a cave with many clay jars containing ancient scrolls that we refer to today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The reason they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls is because the cave that they were found in is just at the very top of the Dead Sea in the, in the Middle East. Archaeologists found 11 caves in all with scrolls and fragments. And how this, how this young man came across these is pretty funny, I think. Um, any basketball fans in the house or people who have know anything about basketball, um, you know, if you've ever wadded up a piece of paper, not your notes, but a different piece of paper and like chucked them at the, at the, at the garbage can, wait for it to go in, you shout, Kobe, right, when it goes in. Anybody ever done that? Right, it's not LeBron, it's Kobe, trust me. It's Kobe, all day, every day. And so, so, or for the Suns fans in the house, Booker, right? There we go, Booker, there you go. So, man, the house divided in here today. They just got some tension. I gotta leave the, do I? Okay, we'll accept George too, yes, yes, yes. So if you, if you have ever done that, like kids like playing a little game, well, these guys, these kids were out watching some sheep, and as kids are prone to do, they get a little bored, and so they see this large opening up on the mountain, and they're like, hey, bro, can you throw a rock and make it in that place? And so they start hucking rocks. That's what they do. They start hucking rocks, and all of a sudden, one of them hucks a rock, and then they hear, push, something shatter. And then what happens? Oh, no, we're dead. What was in that cave? They rush up there and they find these clay pots. And in that first cave, in those pots, 
was something that is referred to as the great Isaiah scroll. It is the entire copy of the Old Testament book of Isaiah on one scroll, all intact together. Next line of your notes. These scrolls contain copies of many ancient writings. 40% of the Dead Sea Scrolls were of Old Testament books, including the book of Isaiah. Here's the important part. The scrolls were dated to 125 B.C. or B.C.E. There is evidence in our hand today some people consider the Dead Sea Scrolls one of the greatest, most significant findings of our lifetimes, honestly. There is evidence in our hands now to say, no, man, this wasn't written after the fact. It was written beforehand. How do we know that? Because we have a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written 125 years before Jesus was ever born. I'm going to show you um, next line of your notes. The scrolls provided further evidence that the book of Isaiah was written before, was written before Jesus lived. So the prophecies were not invented after he lived. They actually showed Jesus fulfilled every prophecy from 700 years earlier. So where is this great Isaiah scroll? I'm going to have Jules show the next picture. It is in this museum in Jerusalem called the Museum of the Book. And what does the word Bible mean? Book. They actually have to, if you see that little skylight at the top of the picture, this has to be kept underground and in a certain climate-controlled area so it won't disintegrate. This shape that you see in the middle was supposed to be like a shape of a giant scroll. And that little, the round part that looks highlighted right in the middle of the picture on the bottom of that little architectural design is this great scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls written and completely wrapped around. It's there today. So we know that this stuff was not made up after the fact. I heard a scholar say um, an ounce of evidence overruns a ton of presuppositions. What happened is everyone's like, oh, well, we don't have any evidence that happened beforehand, so it must not be. Giant assumption. One kid throwing a rock in a cave. And Jesus uses that to show the world, no, 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 no. Not made up. Here's your evidence. Point number two. So we know that they didn't happen, you know, they, they weren't tampered with after the fact and made up. But number two, how do we know that the scribes and the copies are reliable? Scribes are the people who wrote them down. The copies that we have are written by scribes. How do we know that they are reliable? That next line in your notes is reliable. I heard uh, uh, someone who was um, an atheist who was in a debate and an argument who said, how many of you read the Bible? And these people put their hand up. It's like, actually, none of you have read the Bible. You read a scribal copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. None of you know what God's word really says. 
because if you write something down and somebody else writes it down, somebody else writes it down, over a while, you're going to have things that are discrepancies and things that are different in every single copy. And so their accusation is, well, um, these scribes could have written anything. How do you know that what you have in your, in your Bible and in, in your hand is actually the real deal? How do you know that? Good question. We just proved that it wasn't written after the fact. God's given us that evidence. So how do we know that what was written here is actually reliable? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls help us with this as well. So another benefit of finding them is that we can also test how accurate the copies were that were found, written before the time of Jesus, and compare them to the Aleppo Codex, which we showed you earlier, that book that was all Hebrew, and what we have today. The book of Isaiah, the copies of Dead Sea Scrolls were 125 B.C., Aleppo Codex, 950 A.D., and the modern Bible today. That is a span of 2,100 years. It's two millennium and then some. Something somewhere had to change, right? That's the argument that people present. <clears throat> but Norman Geisler, he's a biblical theologian, he made a very, very interesting um, Acknowledgement about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Listen to this. Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, only 17 letters are in question. Ten of the letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense or the meaning. Four more of the letters are stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. So instead of writing cannot, someone wrote can't. Instead of writing will not, they wrote won't. Not changing anything, they just wrote a little bit shorter from themselves. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meeting greatly. So what does verse 11 say? And I wrote and I put it in your notes in the NIV on purpose because this is the only translation that adds the word light here. And it says, after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It's the only translation that I found, that I looked at, a, at 10 of them, that add this word light. And, many, and so people could say, well, see, they added something to it. Possibly. But most scholars and theologians believe that word light is in reference to resurrection. He saw the light after he died. So it does not weaken the case for the Messiah. It actually increases it. Even if you remove the word light, that is, not found, that, that is found in the oldest translation and not in the one that we use modern day for our current English versions, it doesn't change what happens. It's inconsequential. What that means is, next line of your notes, after 1,100 years of unknown multiple scribes copying the book of Isaiah, there are only three letters that are different, that are different from Isaiah 53, and those three letters do not change the meaning of the passage. I don't know about you, but to me, that is astounding. That for 1,100 years, every single person who copied the copy of the copy of the copy got it right. There's a couple little things in there, you know, spelling differences that we will widely acknowledge, um, and that is that's not a problem. 
but if you write the name John, J-O-H-N, and I write it J-O-N, but we're talking about the same person, does it matter? No. Next on your notes, that is a 99% accuracy rate. 99% accuracy rate. Okay, Matt, well, that's the Old Testament. We got you. There's a scroll. It was written beforehand. You know, I don't, can't really deal with the Old Testament anymore. You proved that one. What about the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Now, let me make an admission about the New Testament, and this might shock some of you folks who've been in church for a long time. We do not have the original copies of the New Testament writing and letters. That's the next line of your notes. When I say we, I mean we as a society, not like they're at my house in the garage. That's not what I'm talking about. But we, we do not have the original copies of the New Testament writings and letters. And you might say, well, why is that? Next line in your notes. The originals were written on pieces of papyrus. I'll spell that for you. P-A-P-Y-R-U-S. Papyrus. And disintegrated over time for corrosion, exposure to the elements, and continued handling. So if you're wondering what papyrus is, next on your notes, papyrus was made from papyrus plants. <clears throat> so I'll show this next picture up here on the screen. This is a picture of papyrus. Now that might look very boring to you. Like, it's tan. Like Nacho Libre. My, my favorite color is light tan. Right? This is light tan. But if you'll notice that there's these, these strips, you see these little stripes across, up and down and kind of side to side? For the papyrus plant, they would take the stem and the top part of the stem had really thin fibers. The middle part of the stem had medium thickness fibers and the bottom part of the stem had very thick fibers. And depending on which culture you were a part of, you used either a thinner or a thicker level of the plant to make the papyrus. Romans liked the middle portion. They liked how it felt, I guess, and so they would cut the papyrus plant, take the middle portion, and they would peel off the outside, and they would peel these strips and lay them down in a crisscross pattern. They would wet them so they would stick together, and they would put them in the sun. And that is how the message of the gospel and the letters of the New Testament were written and passed around about the eternal Savior. On strips of plant stem that were wet and dried to make one piece. Talk about biodegradable, right? These things are not going to last thousands and thousands of years. And when someone would come in from Corinth, who was a believer, and they would say to Ephesus, the people in Ephesus, hey, didn't Paul write you a letter? Yeah, can I grab that and write it down so I can take it back? Sure. And it was handled over and over and over again. But we know from last week that 5,600 copies of the New Testament exist in our hands today. So now, we don't have the originals, but we have all of these copies. And so next line in your notes, this might be something you didn't know either. There are thousands of textual variants, meaning differences in the text between all the copies. Thousands of textual variants 
between the copies of the New Testament. In fact, there are so many variants, no two copies are identical or agree with each other completely. Matt, it seems like you kind of just made the case for people who are against the Bible. If there's all these variations, there's all these differences between all of these writings, and there's no two that match, how in the world can we be sure that what we have is real? And if you just sat right there for a second, you could kind of tense up, like a little panic. I've been reading this my whole life, man. You've been preaching out of it forever. What's the deal with the, the Bible? Man, it's got differences in the copies. It does. Mm -hmm. But we have to look at the nature. What are the variants? 99.8% of the variants are spelling related. 99% of the variants or differences are spelling related. So I want to show you a picture that a scholar put together that I just ripped right off of him. So this, I didn't make this. Is there a one that's got like a blue box? I'm sorry. There you go. Sorry, I put it in the wrong order for you. Um, if this blue box represents every single difference between the New Testament copies, the blue portion are the ones that are differences in spelling. If you spell Mary, M-A-R-Y, but I as a scribe spell it M-A-R-I, they call that a difference. If you wrote um, John, J-O-N, and I wrote a J-O-H-N, that's a difference. And they categorized all of them, and there's a ton of them. Why are there a ton of them? Because we have almost 30,000 copies I saw one, I saw a picture of one. This would have been me as a scribe. This is why I kind of chuckle and share it. But one of the scribes, he wrote, a ver he was writing, I think it was somewhere in Luke, and he wrote um, verse 7, and then he accidentally skipped to verse 8 and wrote 9 instead. And then he had a moment where he went, oh, dang it. And then he wrote verse 8 on the margin and put like a little asterisk where it should have gone. I'm like, dude, that was totally, I can't even bag on you, man. That totally would have been me if I was writing it down, right? And they consider that a variant. Oh, it's out of order. Well, it's not out of order. He just messed it up, but we're going to acknowledge it as a variant because we're trying to scrutinize it because we know it's the Word of God. That yellow box represents 0.02%, one-fifth of 1% one of the variations that aren't spelling-related and are in question that people have conversations about. Just that little box. <clears throat> Let me show you an example of what, you can put that next slide up, Jules, um, um, of what this variant looked like. So in Romans 1.17, it says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay? So, I think this is a real example of what scribe one wrote, the just shall live by faith, but the T in just was either omitted or faded away or dissolved over time. And so all you see in the scribe one paper is J-U-S, not J-U-S-T. Well, then you look at the second one and you realize, 
oh, this guy wrote just J-U without the S and T. The third scribe wrote the word just missing the U, and the fourth one wrote it missing the J. But if you put all of these together, you can clearly see what it says. The just shall live by faith. And even though this is technically four variations, these are discrepancies between one and the other, it's very clear what it should be. 99.8% of the variance or the errors in the New Testament are like this. And the reason it helps us because we have so many copies is we can very clearly see exactly what they were doing because we have 30,000 copies, not just four. But even if we only had four, we could put it together. You follow me? Okay. So, I want to talk, and this might be counterproductive for some of you, but I think it's, it's, very, it's a very real transparent thing to do. Let's talk about three variants that were in that little yellow box. Let's talk about three of the things that might actually be wrong. Number one, it is, um, next line of your notes, I'm sorry, before, before the example one. Uh, the New Testament variant that we're going to discuss first is the ending of the book of Mark, chapter 16. It's one of the largest New Testament variants, okay? So I want to show this next slide real quick. This is a picture of my Bible sitting on my table at home. And you, I don't know if you can see that, but if you look in the NLT version, and if you can't see that, you can look at it on your phone, and you'll see the same thing. You'll see after verse 8, this is Mark chapter 16, the first arrow at the top says, um, shorter ending of Mark. The second arrow says longer ending of Mark. And if you look at those, you could say, wait a minute, there's a shorter ending and a, large, a longer ending? Because in the newer version, the longer ending exists, but in the oldest versions we have, the shorter version exists. Most scholars, after looking at the evidence, agree that the longer ending of Mark 16, verses 9 through 19, is not a part of the original writing and was added later. So the part that said Mary Magdalene had seven demons and they were cast out of her wasn't in the original writing, or at least wasn't in the oldest version of the writing that we have. I had no clue as a kid growing up that the longer portion wasn't actually, right, wasn't actually in the oldest ones. How were they able to verify portions of that? They've, since those printings, found older copies of the Bible, and they make these notations to help us know this is a portion that's in question. If you read that, you'll see the end of Mark, especially in the NLT, even on your YouVersion Bible app, it actually tells you that um, the oldest manuscripts, do, they, they end at verse 8. They don't continue on. They got about 10 scriptures right there at the very end of Mark that you go, wasn't in the original. 
and they're so concerned that you have the accurate word of God, they would call them own self out. That the newer versions had it, but the olders didn't. That's one of the things they discuss. Number two, Mark 9.29. So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This is the passage where the disciples went to try to cast out a demon from someone. And they couldn't do it, and they brought him to Jesus, and Jesus cast the demon out. And they said, why weren't we able to do it? And he says to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Those last two words, and fasting, are not in the oldest copy of what we have. It says this kind can only come out by prayer, not and fasting. The oldest manuscript of Mark, next on you or not, does not include the last two words, and fasting. <clears throat> Example three. Revelation 13, 18. For all you guys who are uh, familiar with Revelation, this one will probably cook your noodle like it did mine for a little bit. Here is wisdom. Let him who has an understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666, right? 666. Everybody sees the number 666. If you got a hotel room like I did when we were on the road and it was number 666, I went back down and asked for a 667 because I didn't want to stay in that one. I was a little creeped out by it, actually. <clears throat> I saw a guy online who had 666,000 subscribers. He's like, please, go tell your friends, just subscribe. They never watch my page because I just don't want to be on this number anymore. But the oldest manuscript of Revelation, next line of your notes, shows the number of man and the number of the beast as 616. If you're wondering, 616 error code is Grand Rapids, Michigan. I looked that up for you. About a couple hours outside there is a city called Hell, Michigan. I don't, it's a real thing. <clears throat> 616. Okay, so biblical scholars freely admit that the scribes who copied the scriptures were not absolutely perfect in their writings. Surprise, they were human. But of these three examples, which are three pretty bigger examples that are discussed throughout all the scholars. Do any of these things change the core message of the gospel? None of them. If you're performing an exorcism, you may not have to fast to perform the exorcism, to cast out a demon. You may want to, just in case, but you probably don't have to because it wasn't in there. The end of Mark with Mary having seven demons that were cast out, doesn't impact anything about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The number of the beast being 616 or 666 has no bearing on you having faith in Christ. The fact that these scribes misspelled words, misconjunction, or occasionally confused a punctuation mark does not change the fact that the Bible and the message of the gospel is inerrant and true. None of it. This is even, um, is even uh, presented and agreed upon by atheist scholars. 
who don't believe in God. And I want to take one second, and you might be like, bro, hit me with a lot of data, numbers, facts, history. What are we doing? Like, it's our, the service is already at nighttime. It's already close to my bedtime. I'm fading here, man. What are you doing? And this is one of the main reasons I want to, uh, there's several reasons, but I want you to hear the story about a man named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a former Christian. To this day, he does not claim Christianity at all. He was raised in church, a very hardcore fundamentalist church that believed that the Bible they had, every single word in English was perfect and without flaw. Was not, there was never a typo. There was never a, a, a conjunction that was added. There was never a discrepancy ever once in his English version. That's what they taught him as a kid. Not that the message was pure, but that every single letter, every single word was written in his translation of the Bible in English and that it was perfect and without flaw. And then he went to college. And he wanted to become a theologian and an expert on the New Testament and a scholar. And when they started telling him, oh, there were differences, there were different scribal errors and things between men who had written down the wrong word or got tired one night or whatever and they, they, they wrote the, the, the misspelling of a word and because he was never told that it sent him in a tailspin to this day he remains someone who rejects the gospel in some cases you could read his book not knowing his story and being like this little sucker you know what I mean? Like, I just want to get him somewhere and be like, stop lying. But he's hurt. Felt like he was lied to. Wounded. And he wrote a book to highlight all these variants called Misquoting Jesus. They wrote a paper, they wrote a hardback book first and then a paperback book. He walked away from the faith because he never knew there were variants in Scripture. And in his book, which was given to hundreds upon thousands of university students, his hurt bled through the pages as he tried his best to show the differences, the contextual variants, the the, the miswritings of all of these things. And when students read this book throughout universities, throughout the world, they left with the impression the Bible is just a flawed ancient writing that has no credibility or reliability. But that wasn't his intention. And how do we know that? Because they wrote a second run of the book in paperback and they added some questions from the producer to Bart Ehrman at the end of the book. And on page 252 in the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus in the appendix section, the, the producers ask him this question, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based upon scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? Notice they didn't ask him, are they, are the core tenants in jeopardy? They read the book and it led them to the assumption that they were in jeopardy. And then Bart Ehrman responds, an atheist man 
who used to follow Christ and rejected him outright, who still to this day is a, a New Testament biblical scholar, said this, quote, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. God communicated the truth to all of us through someone who doesn't even believe in him. My heart broke when I read that Bart Ehrman also said, the Jesus that I knew as a young man, I don't know anymore, and I miss him. I miss Jesus. Sir Frederick Kenyon, he's a paleographer extraordinaire and the principal librarian at the British Museum for several decades. He made this statement about the, all the manuscripts of the New Testament. The general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scripture and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable word of God. Number three. This is going to be a real short, short point to kind of wrap up the, this message. How many essential doctrines of the Christian faith are impacted by these textual variants? Anybody want to guess what that answer is? Zero. None. The Old Testament accuracy rate on communicating the message of the Old Testament is at 99% for the whole thing. The New Testament, 99.5%. Matt, why are we going over all this? Because I don't want you to run into someone who has listened to only a couple of the headlines and the top bullet points about Scripture and tells you, why are you reading the Bible? It's all messed up, and you can't be sure that what you have is the real thing. Oh, no, my friend. We can be sure when we look at the evidence. God does not ask you to turn off your mind to serve him. Jesus didn't say he's the way, the truth, and the life to try to twist your arm to say, he's the truth, just say it. He's the truth. No, pursue the truth. Look for the evidence, and you follow the evidence to where it leads, not where you want it to lead, but where it leads. And if you are truly seeking truth, you are going to land on Jesus. That's where you're going to land. How is your life transformed? Does Paul say at the beginning of Romans? By the renewing of your mind. We cannot be people who just feel our way through our Christian experience. Because if we are only people who feel our way through it, I just feel like the Lord is saying to me, I just feel like I should go in this direction, I just feel like the Lord is in this place. If you only go by that feeling and you do not equip yourself and transform your mind and, and, and equip yourself to be able to look at things through a logical lens... You're going to run into a feeling 
that you don't know how to navigate? Am I telling you to turn the feeling off? Absolutely not. God gave you those emotions. He gave you a soul to be able to feel that, but he also gave you a mind that you could search out, research, dig in, and find the truth. And my friend, the longer you pursue the evidence, the more it's going to streamline and point like a giant flashing road sign, Jesus is the only way. Why go over this? Because some of you guys in this room are about to walk into a university, into a college. You're going to walk into a place that is secular in nature, that has no intent to honor God by anything. Their actual intent is to destroy most of the things that you believe. Those guys that raised you, the parents and stuff, that's cute with all their religion and stuff, but we know really what's up. Anyone who tells you to ignore the wisdom of those who's gone before you is praying, praying on your inexperience. Don't listen to them. Because I know that they don't know. And if they don't know, then it's very sure that I know. So I know. So listen to me. This has happened many times throughout history. Colossians 2, 1 through 4. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, or in Colossae. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. How in the world do you know about Jesus? It's in his word. How do you know that he fulfilled all the prophecies? It's in his word. How do you know that he lived a sinless life? It's in his word. How do we know that he raised from the dead? It's in his word. How do you know that he died and was buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb and then raised on the third day? It's in his word. Many people are trying to attack the authenticity and validity of his word, and they've been doing it ever since Jesus died. He is telling you, I want you to be confident that the message that you have, the message about Christ that has been given to you is the real thing. And you need to be prepared logically and mentally with your mind to be able to resist and refute and understand the problems with these well-crafted arguments that appear that they might be true. That guy sounds like he knows what he's, what he's talking about. That person is referencing scriptures I've never seen before. This person is bringing out these contradictions in the text that I've never seen before. No one ever told me that there were scribal errors. And so now I'm being thrown for a loop, just like Bart Ehrman. I'm here today to equip you and to tell you that these well-sounding arguments are just that, 
well-sounding. They are not based on the evidence or any fact. I am here to tell you today that the Bible you hold in your hand may have a scribal error or two. They may have forgot the comma instead of a period. They may have put a conjunction when there was two words in the original, but the thought, the meaning, the intent, the perfection of the message of the gospel and what God did through Jesus for you and for me is pure evidence, verifiable, true. There is no reason to question it. If you question it, fine, pursue the truth. Ask your questions. George Washington said, I would think that God would want someone to question over blind faith because that person is actually attempting to try to understand. I'm paraphrasing what he said. Wouldn't God want someone to honestly question and find him for real as opposed to just be like, somebody told me this was real as a kid, so I'm just going to navigate my whole life with this. Which one do you think he would rather? He wants you to pursue him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Look for the evidence. Don't look for the guy who talks the best. Don't look for the girl who presents the argument the best. Don't look at the person who sounds right. And it's just such a well-crafted argument. No, look for the proof. And if that's what you look for, you're going to find him. You're going to find Jesus. As I was getting ready for this message this morning, I had a sense that the Spirit of God led me on one little curveball that I wanted to make sure I present. These scribes, their entire job, their career, their reputation was on the line when they wrote and copied these ancient texts, what they were assigned to do. If you're an athlete today, you spend time in the gym. You take pride in your craft, at least the best of them do. You try to work on what you do. You try to be better at your skill, and these scribes were no different. Their reputation hung on their ability to accurately transcribe by hand, no copy and paste or a right click on Windows. by hand, manually writing from one piece to another so it would be able to be distributed and listened to. And even though all of their reputation was on the line and it was their entire career and it was the thing that they focused on the most and it was their job to take these words and make sure to communicate them further so other people would hear the message, they still, at the height of their profession, screwed up. They still made mistakes. And we look back on them and be like, well, bro, I mean, all he did was miss a comma or instead of a semicolon or these little bitty textual variants, these little bitty things. It doesn't even matter. We have it in our hand. And yes, that is true. But I want to encourage you, kind of on just a little bit of an offshoot here. The people whose job it was in your life that you have personally experienced, whose job it was to communicate and transmit 
the gospel to you? That you saw up close and personal their screw up? You saw up close and personal the way that they did not do the right thing? In the same way that those little errors did not change the message of the core of the gospel. The same way the people today who you may have seen up close and made mistakes and said stupid stuff and maybe may, and, and did something wrong and sinful in their life, even though it was their job, their career, their reputation on the line that presented the gospel forward to you, you saw them mess up. A man's mistake never tarnishes the truth of the gospel. What you have in your hands as a scripture is evidence of that. And the people in your life who have made mistakes that have worn the, past, the, the pastor title that I wear, fulfill the role of minister, worship leader, deacon, elder, that have messed up in your life, that mess up has no bearing on the truth of the gospel. The person that messed up should not have messed up. They're 100% wrong with you. But in the grand scheme of things, scribal error. Why? Because it doesn't impact the gospel. There's not one of those variants in the Bible that says, no, Jesus didn't die. He was not crucified. He didn't, he wasn't buried. He actually survived the whole process. He wasn't really beating, he just pretended. Mm -mm. Not one of those variants point to that. They all confirm what all of us who are believers in him already know beyond a shadow of doubt. Jesus lived the life we couldn't that he fulfilled every one of those prophecies lined out in Isaiah. And whether some scribe messed up on the spelling of a word or not, it has no bearing on the truth of the gospel and the perfect purity of Jesus' life and the fact that faith in him is the only way to be reconciled to God. It didn't feel like a small thing, Matt. I get it. I get it. But in the grand scheme of things, your faith is not in the scribe. You're appreciative of the work you did, but your faith is not in the scribe. Your faith is in the God who sent him. Imperfections and all, the perfect message of the gospel remains forever.